Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Radio Days. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Here we feature mostly cop and detective shows, plus adventure, plus surprise. You never know, but it's the best from the golden age of radio. We'll guarantee that. For those of you who want non-stop crime buster and detective shows, you can now add 1001 Radio Crime Solvers to your podcast library. That's 1001 Radio Crime Solvers. Brand new for 2023 and growing fast. Enjoy! The story you are about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned a homicide detail. An attractive blonde secretary is found beaten to death in a downtown office building. You've only one lead to start with, a length of steel pipe wrapped in heavy paper. There's no trace of the killer. Your job? Get him. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department... You will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Wednesday, September 28th. It was hot in Los Angeles. We were working the night watch out of homicide detail. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Thad Brown, chief of detectives. My name's Friday. I was on the way back from the crime lab, and it was 11.48 p.m. when I got to room 42. Homicide. Romero? Ben? Hey, Romero? Not here. You, Friday? Oh, yeah. Lopey, how are you? You seen Romero around the last half hour? Supposed to meet him here. Well, he's come and gone. Still around the building, though. Got a call. What was it about? Do you know? Yeah, I was on that killing tonight. Call came from one of the cruiser cars checking the neighborhood down where it happened. Yeah? Did they find something? Picked up a guy about three blocks from the murder scene, acting suspicious. Men in the cruiser car figured maybe you'd want to talk to him. They're bringing the man in now? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you been over checking with the crime lab? Yeah, there's not much. The murder weapon's about all we got so far. It's a piece of pipe with heavy manila paper wrapped around it. Uh-huh. Uh, light prints do any good? Yeah, they lifted a lot of fingerprints. They all belong to the victim. None of them are foreign. Mm-hmm. Hey, you got a toothpick, Joe? That corner on the cob for dinner. No, I haven't. Why don't you try the top drawer over there in Mike Pena's desk? He usually has some. Oh, yeah. Thanks. I understand it wasn't much to look at, the killing, I mean. It was a pretty vicious thing. The girl took a terrible beating. Oh. Who found the body? One of the scrub women in the building. It was an office up on the ninth floor, Import-Export Company. The victim was a secretary there. She's a pretty girl. Mm-hmm. She dead long? Must have happened around 7 o'clock tonight. That's my figure. It's just a guess. Uh-huh. What's the girl's name? Been identified yet? Yeah, Adele Pryor. Her boss is out of town. She was working in the office alone. Was no one suspicious seen entering or leaving the office around the time of the murder? There's no one we know of, anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, it's going to take a lot of checking. Yeah. Any idea what the motive could have been? Well, it wasn't a robbery. They didn't keep any cash in the office. As far as we know, the girl wasn't carrying much money. We'll start making the rounds in the morning, checking with her friends, see what we can pick up. Mm-hmm. Joe Friday, you around? Yeah, I'm right here. Back here, Ben. Oh. Oh, hi, Joe. Lovely. Hi. hi. They bring the guy in, Ben? Mm-hmm. Lopey brief you about it, Joe. Yeah, a cruiser car picked up a suspicious-looking guy near the murder scene. Is that about the size of it? A little more than that. They found the man beating his head against a brick wall in a back alley about two blocks from the office building where we found the body. Uh-huh. 
Guy'd been drinking heavily, and when they picked him up, he's pretty far gone. Kept mumbling something about how he didn't deserve to live, how he's a murderer, killer, not too coherent. Mm-hmm. They asked him about the dead girl, Del Pryor? Yeah, but the stuff he said didn't make much sense. He sobered up a little since he picked him up. We might as well see what we can get out of him before we book him in, huh? Got him in the interrogation room now. Okay. Give it a try anyway. Any calls come in, you know where to find us, Lopey. Yeah, sure, right, sir. Thanks a lot. Did you check with the crime lab, Joe? Yeah. About all we're sure of is the murder weapon. No prints, no other physical evidence. Maybe it won't matter. Got half an idea we might have the killer now. The guy they picked up? How'd he figure? Just a hunch. I don't think he's as drunk as he pretends. We're going to have to place him a lot closer to the murder scene than two blocks away. You can't prove a thing the way it stands. I was downstairs when they brought the man in. I talked to him while they were bringing up the interrogation room. Yeah. Told me he knows the dead girl. All right. Said he was with her an hour before she died. Shortly before 8 o'clock that night, a scrub woman in a downtown office building near the intersection of 8th and South Grand Avenue entered an office on the ninth floor of the building to do her usual cleaning chores. Lying face down behind a desk in the small office, she found the body of 28-year-old Secretary Adele Pryor beaten to death. When we arrived at the scene, routine investigation began, but almost immediately we found ourselves down a blind alley. Repeated questioning of all persons in or about the office building failed to turn up anything in the way of leads. Thorough investigation of the murder scene by the crime lab crew met with the same kind of luck. They knew they had the murder weapon. That was all. The deputy coroner arrived and removed the body to the morgue for posting. At 10 o'clock that night, three hours after the approximate time of the prior girl's death, officers in a cruiser car patrolling the area found a drunken man butting his head against a cement wall and muttering incoherently about a murder. He was picked up and taken immediately to the interrogation room where Ben and I questioned him. We'd talked to him a full hour before he began to make sense. He gave his name as Robert French, age 34, an unemployed electrical engineer. While we questioned him, two men from Homicide were sent to check the hotel room where French told us he was staying. I don't know. I guess I had three, four drinks at Dusty's place, and I went down the street to the Blue Canary, had some more drinks there. I don't remember what happened after that. I wasn't feeling so good. You say you were drinking at Dusty's place around 7 p.m., is that right, French? Suppose so. I wasn't watching the clock. I guess it was around 7. Well, did you talk to anybody while you were in the bar? No, just the bartender. His name's Sarge. I don't know his last name. He'll tell you I was there. What time was it when you got to Dusty's place, French? I couldn't tell you for sure. About 6.30, maybe. Sarge could probably tell you, the bartender. When you were coming up in the elevator, you told us you knew Adele Pryor. Yeah, I knew her. Used to work for her husband. Her ex-husband, I mean. They've been divorced seven, eight years now. Mm Mm-hmm. You said you saw Adele Pryor in her office late this afternoon, French. What was the reason for the visit? I borrowed a couple of dollars from her. She was always pretty good that way. Nice kid. Don't know why anybody'd want to... Kill her like that. Well, how about the show that you were putting on out in the street tonight, French? Beating your head against that wall? What was that all about? Drunk. Really drunk. Felt so low I wanted to kill myself. Just lay down and die. How's that? You remorseful? Felt sorry for something you'd done? I don't know. I don't think of any special reason for it when I get that way. I just keep thinking I want to die. Mm -hmm. I haven't got the nerve for it, though. I know that, like my old man always used to tell me, I haven't got the nerve to do anything right. Just wasn't born that way. I guess that's it. Do you use narcotics, French? No, I haven't even got the nerve for that. Booze, that's all. It's good enough for me, say. You think we could go out for a cup of coffee? Maybe I could use it. We'll have some brought up, huh? Ben, do you mind going down the hall and check with Lopey? Ask him to have some coffee brought up, huh? Yeah, okay. And uh, see if those two men have checked back in yet, will you? Right. Appreciate it, Sergeant. 
Sure gonna be mean when all this booze wears off. I'd like to ask you a little more about the prior girlfriends. Just how well did you know her? Not too well. I guess I used to see her maybe once a month. Mm-hmm. Up there at her office? Yeah, that's right. She's a nice girl. Whenever I was broke, I could always depend on her for a couple of bucks. I liked her. She was a nice person. Did you ever go out with her? No, no. Never did. No romance stuff. I didn't like her that way. She was just a good person. We got along okay. Mm-hmm. You want a cigarette? No, no thanks. Mm-hmm. Mouth's full of cotton already. Mm-hmm. How about this business of Adele Pryor lending you money? She think quite a bit of you? Oh, I did her a couple of favors once. When I was working for her husband, she was still married to him. She was going out with a guy she liked on the side. She was out with this guy once, and I saw him together. She asked me not to say anything, so I didn't. Before she got a divorce, I used to cover up for her all the time. She never forgot it, I guess. Uh-huh. How about when you saw her in her office tonight, French? How'd she seem all right to you? Yeah, same as ever. I asked her if she could lend me a five, and she did. I left. It was about a quarter after six, I guess. There anyone else in the office when you left? Yeah. There was a guy waiting in a little reception room there. Didn't know who he was. You remember what he looked like? Oh, tall fella, about my size, my age. Uh-huh. Joe, can I see you a minute? Yeah. Dorothy and Brian have checked in and just got back from going over French's hotel room. They find anything? White shirt, a pair of brown shoes, a pair of dark trousers. What about them? Blood stains on all of them. The stained pieces of clothing found in the suspect's hotel room were delivered to Lieutenant Lee Jones at the crime lab for detailed examination. Coffee was brought in and Ben and I continued to question French until about 4 a.m. He denied any knowledge or complicity in the killing of 28-year-old Adele Pryor. He told us the blood-stained clothing in his hotel room was the result of an accident he'd been in two weeks before when he'd been drinking heavily. He was checked through R&I while we talked to him, but he had no previous criminal record. French kept insisting that we check on the tall, dark-haired man who'd been waiting in the reception room of the prior girl's office the night before when French left her. We gave the description of the suspect, along with the M.O., to the stats office, requesting them to furnish us with any information regarding any assaults or any solved or unsolved murder. At 4.15 a.m., we booked in Robert French at the main jail on suspicion of 187 P.C., murder. The next morning at 10 a.m., the legwork began. Lopez and Doherty from Homicide started checking on the background and alibi of the suspect, Robert French. It didn't hold much water. None of the people at either of the bars where French said he'd been drinking at the time of the murder could definitely vouch for his presence, but they all volunteered the information that no matter how much he drank, French was never violent toward other people, only himself. Lopez and Doherty continued investigating the suspect while Ben and I checked on the background of the victim, Adele Pryor. At 8.25 p.m., we got back to the office. Hi. Been waiting for you two. Loping, you and Doherty do any good? Nothing to celebrate over. Long day, tired feet. What'd you find out, Lopey? Anything new at all? Oh, maybe French's our man can't prove it by me. Every place we checked, everybody we talked to, same answer. Yeah? He's a smart guy with a good education. He's on the bottle and he's out of work. Everybody seems to like him. He gets drunk, but he never bothers anybody. That's about the worst anybody can say about him. Drinks too much. Well, how about his being friends with the dead girl? Did you think up anything there? Yeah, it only proves he was telling you the truth, though. As far as we could find out, there was nothing going between the two of them. Mm-hmm. Everything we got only verifies what he told you. He had no interest in the girl except to bar off her when he was broke. You got in touch with the girl's ex-husband, did you? Yeah, he couldn't add anything. All clear there. Mm-hmm. Hey, uh, by the way, Lee Jones called from the crime lab just before you came in. What did he have, Lopey? Finished testing the blood stains on those clothes they found in French's hotel room. None of the stains on him match the victim's blood type. It's another dead end. Yeah, you 
It's sure hard to figure. You got anything else, Lopey? Oh, yeah. You've got me, Stop. A report for you from the stats office. Oh, thank you. You asked them to make a run for you last night, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, I did. What's it look like? Just a minute. Yeah, well, it doesn't help much. Looks like more legwork. What's that, Joe? Well, French told us when he left Adele Pryor last night, there was a man in the reception room waiting to see her. He gave us the guy's description, and the stats office made a run on it for us. This is the best one they got. Yeah? The guy's name is William Tanner, WMA, 33 years old, 6 foot 1, 195 pounds, dark hair, dark complexion. Fits the description French gave us of the guy. And the rest of it's a lot closer to home. How do you mean? William Tanner was a prominent suspect in the Donaldson murder last September. Testimony of friends and relatives subsequently cleared him. Donaldson's murder is still unsolved. Mm-hmm. Well, what's the point? Well, the same thing that killed Donaldson killed Adele Pryor. What do you mean? A piece of steel pipe wrapped in paper. To the working detective assigned to examine a criminal case, the element of coincidence, when it occurs, generally serves to complicate any investigation. Toward the solution of the crime, coincidence may mean a lot or it may mean nothing. In any event, it can't be dismissed. This time, we had two examples of coincidence to deal with. A girl had been beaten to death in an office building. Within two blocks of the murder scene, we found a man fairly well acquainted with the victim who admitted seeing the girl within an hour of her death. Primary investigation uncovered some facts which tended to incriminate the man, some facts which tended to prove him innocent. Was his presence in the immediate neighborhood of the killing only coincidental, or was he there at the particular time for the purpose of murder? We didn't know. By the same token, a man by the name of William Tanner was suspected one year before of beating an elderly woman to death with an identical murder weapon, a length of steel pipe wrapped in paper. This same person, William Tanner, matched the description of a man reportedly seen entering Adele Pryor's office shortly before she was murdered. Tanner also had a criminal record of one conviction for assault. Maybe it was a lead, maybe it was nothing. It had to be checked out. We showed Tanner's mugshot to our first murder suspect, Robert French, but he failed to identify it. We went to William Tanner's last known address, but he'd moved. We checked with his next of kin, his brother, Martin Tanner. He was with the city fire department. We found him on duty at the neighborhood fire station on Norwich Avenue. No, I'm afraid not, Sergeant. I haven't seen my brother Bill in three weeks now. If he's not at his apartment, I couldn't tell you where to find him. We tried the last address we had on him. He wasn't there. 8625 Norman Road. Oh, no, no. He moved out of there six, seven months ago. I got his new address in my locker. I can give it to you if you want. We'd appreciate it, yeah. Okay, back this way and then upstairs. All right. What's it about, Sergeant? My brother in some kind of trouble again, I guess, huh? Oh, it's just a routine check. You sound like you almost expect your brother to be in trouble, Tanner. To tell you the truth, I guess I do. I don't know what... Excuse me, man. No, it's not our call. Well, how would you mean that, Tanner? What's happened to your brother? Well, to tell you the truth, I don't know. Bill and I used to live together with our mother. Ma died about two years ago. I don't think Bill ever really got over it. He was a lot closer to Ma than I was. I see. After she died, he drank quite a bit for a while, then he tried women, lots of them. After that, he turned to religion. We thought that'd help. It would have, too. Except that he's an odd guy. He even finds ways of distorting the Bible. I guess he's still pretty religious. He goes to all the revivals, the tent meetings, all that kind of thing. Uh-huh. Do you know any of his women friends? Yeah, I do. Two or three of them. How about the name Adele Pryor? Does that mean anything to you? Uh, would she be kind of a pretty girl, uh-huh. blonde hair, nice clothes? Yeah, that's right. Have you met her, Tanner? Yeah, Bill had me meet her once. He seemed to like her quite a bit. Why? Was he pretty serious about her, or would you know that? Yeah, he was serious about her, all right. He told me that. I don't think it worked both ways, though. Looked to me like she was playing the field. Bill took it way too serious. How do you mean? Well, they went together steady for a while, and then they broke it up. She did, I mean. Mm-hmm. How'd your brother take that? 
Not so good. I remember the night about a month ago. Never saw Bill like that before. Real bad shape. Wasn't drinking either. Is that so? Never saw Bill like that in my life. Like what, Tanner? Off his head. He could have gone out and killed the girl. Before we left the fire station, we got William Tanner's new address from his brother, Martin. It was the same address as that of the murdered girl, Adele Pryor, an apartment house close by the intersection of Wilshire and La Brea. Tanner's apartment was on the third floor, just down the hall from the Pryor girl's apartment. But Tanner wasn't there. The apartment manager told us he'd moved out the night before without leaving a forwarding address. Ben put in a call to the suspect's place of business, an industrial chemical company, where Tanner was employed as assistant office manager. What was the reason, sir? Oh, I see, uh uh-huh. Yeah, well, all right, thanks very much. We'll be checking with you later. What? What'd they say? Tanner left yesterday, quit without giving any notice. Told him he had a better job lined up. Where? South America. Saturday, October 1st, 8 a.m. We got out a broadcast and an APB on murder suspect William Tanner. We checked with the local U.S. State Department office, but they had no record of granting a passport recently to a William Tanner to travel in a South American country. We talked to the various consulates in the city representing South American nations, but none of them had issued a visa to a William Tanner recently or anyone answering his description. Together with Brian and Lopez from Homicide, Ben and I continued the search for the missing suspect. The deeper we checked into his background, the more we became convinced that mentally, Tanner was far from normal. Most of the people who knew the suspect told us the same story his brother had given us. In recent months, Tanner had taken strongly to religion. He attended revival meetings and similar religious exercises every night in the week. He talked nothing but repentance. He quoted the scriptures constantly. He adopted the habit of carrying a Bible with him wherever he went, reading from it aloud every chance he got. He kept urging his friends to join him in being saved. On Monday, October 3rd, we began a check of the various revival halls. On Wednesday, October 5th, we found him. He was attending a gospel revival in a meeting hall in the south end of the city. He told us he had a room in a small hotel directly above the meeting hall, but he seemed reluctant to take us up there. While Lopez and Brian got a pass key from the manager and went up to check the room, Ben and I questioned Tanner downstairs in the lobby of the meeting hall. I'm sorry to hear about Adele. What happened to her? It's a terrible thing, isn't it? Yes, sir. We understand you knew Adele Pryor fairly well, Mr. Tanner. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. I liked her quite a bit at one time. We used to see a lot of each other. I was engaged to her, you know. Well, how is it you never married, Tanner? Did she break off the engagement? No, no. I was lucky. I found out in time. I broke off with her. How do you mean, you found out in time? What'd you find out? I found the truth, Sergeant. The everlasting word. For know this and understand that no unclean person or covetous one has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. For these have given themselves up in despair to sensuality, greedily practicing every kind of uncleanness. Do not then become partakers with them. That's the everlasting word, Sergeant, the holy book. Yes, sir. I'm not quite sure I follow you. Open your eyes and ears to the everlasting word and you will know and understand all things. It's very simple, officer. I don't want to say anything uncharitable about her. Adele wasn't for me. I'm glad I found out in time, that's all. Mm-hmm. When's the last time you saw her, Tanner? Do you remember? No, I don't. Not exactly. I think I saw her a week or so before it happened, before they found her dead. Where was that that you saw her? How's that? I say, where was it the last time you saw her? On the street. It was downtown somewhere. I passed her on the street. You used to live in the same apartment house she did, isn't that right? Just down the hall from her? Yes, sir, I did. Why? And for a full week, you didn't happen to see the prior girl around the apartment building at all? 
No, that's right. When I broke off with Adele, that was it. I had no reason to see her anymore. Well, it's not too clear, Tanner. It doesn't jive with what we've been told about you and the prior girl. Well, the lies, of course. I suppose you know that. Adele was a beautiful girl, very beautiful. A lot of men she knew were jealous of me. Well, the way we understand it, Tanner, you never did break off with Miss Pryor. You were going around with her, and you were seen with her right up to the day of her death. Well, that's certainly a lie, and I can prove that. As soon as I found out about Adele, that was weeks before she was killed, as soon as I found out, that was the end. I broke off with her right away. I'd like to know what you're referring to, Tanner. You found out why. Adele, Adele, she was one of those. Huh? I'm sorry, she was. A sinner. I almost went out of my mind when I found out. She knew it was wrong. She must have known was right there in the book for anybody to read. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Now, look, Tanner, what are you trying to tell us? It was terrible. She sinned all the time. She committed terrible sins. Uh, will you come into the side room over here? I can tell you all about her. I'd just as soon not talk about it here. Sure, go ahead. In here. All right. Just one question before you get started, Tanner. Yes? Did you ever visit Adele Pryor at her place of business downtown at her office? No, I never did. Why? Did you visit Adele Pryor at her office the day she was killed? The Lord is my witness, Sergeant. I have nothing to fear. Why should you ask me that question? Well, we have a report that you were seen going into the office less than an hour before the Pryor girl was murdered. I'd like to have you clarify that for us, if you would. Certainly. It's a lie. And you're sure you weren't in that office with her just before she died? Well, let me tell you about her sins. There was never anything as evil as this, Sergeant. Is that right? Yes, it was a terrible shock. I liked Adele. I think I loved her. We'd been going out for two months. Sometimes I'd take her here so that she could learn about the everlasting word, so that she could know about the terrible sins some people commit. Oh, drinking and parties and carryings on. Things no one should do, especially girls like Adele. Beautiful girl. How can you be sure she was doing anything wrong, Tanner? Do you have any real proof of that? Everything, Sergeant. I knew. Just knowing that she was sinning against the Lord. Did you know any of the other men she went out with? They were sinful, I knew that. They only liked Adele because she was beautiful. Did you know any of the men, Tanner? Did you know for a fact that there was anything wrong? I knew everything, Sergeant. She was a beautiful girl, and I thought she was a woman of the Lord, and I wanted her for my wife. But she gave in to sin. Now, I guess that's her business, Tanner, how she lived. We're trying to find out how she died. Well, just let me tell you about it. I'd lie there in the dark in my room upstairs, and I'd wait to hear her come in down the hall... It was always late. Two and three o'clock in the morning, I'd hear her come you in. You still haven't told us, Tanner. What about the men she went out with, this prior girl? Slaves of the devil, every one of them. I, I thought I'd go out of my mind. All right, now, come on. You want to tell us, mister, how about it? Is that what made you do it? No, wait a minute. You don't want to wait to listen. You say made me do it. Made me do what? I think you know what we mean, Tanner. You want to tell us now? It's a terrible thing. All this sin around us. It's a grave thing. The whole world. There is not one just man. There is none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. There is none who does good. No, not even one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have dealt deceitfully. The venom of asps is beneath their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the path of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. No fear of God. Well, yes, sir. We're still like an answer to our question. Maybe we could talk a little better downtown. The wisdom and the knowledge is here and now. I knew Adele and her terrible sins. They had to be paid for. Adele had to pay for every one of them. You want to get to the point, mister? Now, what is it? What are you trying to tell us? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the charity of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. So she sinned and so she died. Yeah. In the name of God and in the name of our Lord, amen. I killed her. 
William Harold Tanner was brought downtown immediately where he volunteered a complete statement admitting full guilt for the murder of Adele Pryor. Blood-stained clothing found in his room corroborated his story. It was obvious that the man was mentally unbalanced. He gave us the details of how he murdered Adele Pryor because she spurned his attentions. We began questioning him about the Donaldson murder, which had taken place more than a year before and which was still unsolved. The victim, 64-year-old Louise Donaldson, had met death in the same manner as Adele Pryor. No, I didn't know the old lady, but she had money. I'd been told that. I was broke and I needed the cash, so I thought it'd be a good thing. This was in September a year ago that you murdered her? Yes, sir, September, all right. She was all alone. She didn't have anybody. She was sick. I probably did her a favor. Your package here says that you figured in the investigation on the plot to blow up the Rexmore Hotel about three years ago, homemade bomb planted in the basement of the hotel? Yes, that was mine, three years ago in September. You never could have traced it. Too bad the bomb didn't go off. I hated those hotel people. Is that right? What was the matter? I worked at that hotel once, you know. Worked hard, too. One Saturday, they held up my paycheck. I didn't get it till next Tuesday. Never forgot that. September. September. Now, what's that got to do with it? I don't know, really. September's always been the time, that's all. I work into some kind of trouble. Last four years, every September. I don't know what it is. Seems to be the best time to get rid of them. Yeah, September. It's always September. Mm-hmm. I didn't really want to kill Adele. There wasn't anything else I could do. She was a sinner. Yeah. Drinking, running around. She committed sins all the time. Worst kind of sins. Terrible. Let me tell you, maybe you better check the book, Tanner. You're way ahead of her. What do you mean? What kind of sin's worse than murder? The story you have just heard was true. The names were changed to protect the innocent. On January 10th, trial was held in Superior Court, Department 87, City and County of Los Angeles, State of California. In a moment, the results of that trial. Further investigation proved beyond a doubt that William Tanner, besides murdering Adele Pryor, had also taken the life of 64-year-old Louise Donaldson the year before, and that he was responsible for the attempted bombing of the Rexmoor Hotel the year before that. After examination by three psychiatrists appointed by the state, the suspect was found to be sane at the time of the murders. Tanner was convicted of first-degree murder and received the death penalty. He was executed in the lethal gas chamber at the state penitentiary, San Quentin, California. just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice comes from the office of Chief of Police W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.
detective sergeant, you're assigned to auto theft detail. A gang of criminals masquerading as legitimate auto dealers start to work in your city. Innocent people are cheated out of thousands of dollars. The thieves are clever. They work a foolproof formula. Your job? Stop them. Dragnet. The documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Tuesday, February 19th. It was chilly in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out of auto theft. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Captain Nelson. My name's Friday. We were on the way out from the office, and it was 10.25 a.m. when we got to the corner of 38th Street and Maxbury Avenue, the Greenleaf Day Nursery School. Mrs. Uh, Palmer, is that right? Yeah, I think so. Just a minute. I got it written down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Excuse me, ma'am. Look at the Policeman, Martin Romero, Friday. Oh, yeah. Oh, going to get all about it. Is that it? Yes, ma'am. We've been handling similar complaints for the last month or so. We'd like to have you tell us everything that happened in your case, if you would, please. One of the most underhanded things I've ever heard of, Sergeant. It would have been the same thing if he'd held me up with a gun. Just out-and-out robbery. Well, could you give us some of the details, ma'am? How you were first approached on the deal? Excuse me a minute, please. Children, time to go inside now. We're going to color pictures with the crayons this morning. Mrs. Johnson has them all ready for you inside. Bruce, Michael, Sandra, go along now. Inside, everyone. Certainly wish the warm weather would hurry up and come. Children always raise such an uproar when we have to keep them indoors. Worst part of running a day nursery to win a month. Yes, ma'am, I suppose. Now, about your automobile, Miss Palmer, we understand you had it up for sale. You advertised one of the local newspapers, that right? Yes, that's right. I ran one of those three-day want ads over the weekend, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. I thought I'd get more for my car if I sold it myself. I mean, instead of selling it to a used car lot. Yes, ma'am. How many answers did you get on your want ad? Well, just the one where it turned out. This man came out and looked at my car first thing in the morning. He offered to pay me exactly what I was asking for it, so I sold it to him. That's just the way it went. Who was this man, Mrs. Palmer? Was he representing some auto company? Yes, he said he was anyway. He gave his name as Joseph Newhall. I've got his card inside. He said he was a buyer for Dan Barton's used car lot on South Cat Street. Nice addressed man. He made it all seem so honest. How was the deal arranged? Could you tell us? I mean, transfer the car payment and so forth? Well, he gave me a check for $50, sort of a down payment to hold the car for him. It was a certified company check. I see. He told me he'd be back that afternoon with a certified check for the full amount of the car, $800. Did he take your car with him then? No, he didn't. That's why I had no reason to be suspicious. He left me the check for $50 and said he'd beat her with the money. said in the meantime, one of the employees from the used car lot might be along to pick up the car to save me the trouble of driving it downtown myself. Mm-hmm. Same M.O. Joe all the way. Yeah, looks like it. Well, how did it go after that, Miss Palmer? This worker from the used car lot came to the house to pick up the car about 1 o'clock that afternoon. He gave me a check for the full amount of the car, and I gave him the pink slip. He had a pair of white coveralls on, lettering on the back of them, Dan Barton's used cars. Looked like a typical mechanic or something. I wasn't the least bit suspicious. Mm-hmm. How about the buyer, this Joseph Newhall? Did he show up later in the day? No, he never came back. I've never seen him since. Haven't seen my car either. I called that Dan Barton Juice car lot the next morning. They told me they never heard of Joseph Newhall. Just made me sick, officer. 
I can't afford to lose the money I had in that car. Yes, ma'am, we understand. The same things happened to a dozen people like you around the city. Do you remember what this man Newhall looked like, Miss Palmer, his physical description, maybe the clothes he was wearing? Yes, I've got it all written down, Sergeant, in my diary. Would you like to step inside, please? I've got my little office at the back of the school here. All right, thank you very much. I always make a record of everything in my diary. I've kept one ever since I was a girl in college, every day. I suppose you've got all the information on your car, the make, license number, things like that? Oh, yes, indeed. i got everything together I thought might help you. Right up these stairs, please. Thank you. Go ahead. Uh, how about the description of the man in overalls, the one who came to pick up your car? Would you remember him, ma'am? Yes, I've got that for you, too. Everything I thought would help. Just have a seat there, officers. I've got the things in my desk here. Thank you, Right ahead. Thank you. I wouldn't mind the whole thing so much, but as I say, I can't afford to lose the cash I had tied up in my car. That seems to be the way the thieves operate, ma'am. They've been cheating the people who can least afford it. Terrible thing, just out and out robbery. There you are, Sergeant. Uh-huh. Thank you, ma'am. There's the description of my car, license number, all the rest. Yes, I see. And here's the description of the two men at Joseph Allen Coveralls who picked up my car. Have you got that deposit check Newhall gave him his bomb and the check for $50? Right here, Sergeant. I saw that company about it, Dan Barton's used car lot. Forgery. Not worth the papers printed on. Mm-hmm. I love you. Yeah, right. Same as the other. One thing I don't understand, how those crooks get these checks to begin with. Did they steal them? No, ma'am. We figured they had them printed up. We're still trying to find out where. Well, you know what the men look like. You'll be able to find them now, won't you? Only wish it worked that way, ma'am. We've had good descriptions on both men for a month now. Hasn't helped too much. I don't understand it at all. As I say, they're only common crooks. They can't be that smart, can they? Well, there's only one way we can judge. We've been hunting every day for a month now. Yes. They're still... In the space of 33 days, the auto theft gang had victimized a dozen private citizens throughout the city. In each instance, the approach and the method of operation had been the same. The front man for the gang would personally answer a want ad inserted in the local newspaper by a private citizen advertising the sale of his automobile. The front man would represent himself falsely as a buyer for Dan Barton's used car lot, a well-known and legitimate used car dealer. He'd offer to pay exactly the sale price which the private party was asking. As a deposit, the so-called buyer would leave a counterfeit company check for $50 or $100 with a promise that he would return later in the day with a certified check for the full amount. After a few hours, another man posing as an employee of Dan Barton's youth would call for the car and drive it away. Neither the car nor the so-called buyer were ever seen again. All efforts to trace them went for nothing. 11.40 a.m., Ben and I went back to the office and got out a broadcast and a supplementary APB on Mrs. Palmer's car and also on the phony car buyer who called himself Joseph Newhall. After lunch, we met with Sergeant Lindsby, one of the other four men out of auto theft detail who were working the case with us. How'd you make out this morning, Army? That did go anywhere at all? Wasn't bad as far as it went. We found the place where they had the printing done. Yeah, where was that? Small cut in the valley. Printed up the phony checks with that heading on it. Dan Barton's used car lot. Got out some business cards for him, too. What was the name? Did you find out? Yeah, same one, Joseph Newhall. He ordered the checks and the business cards. Printer described him for us, same guy. Where's it go from there? No place. The printer told us Newhall had a car. He couldn't give us a license number. Couldn't even remember the make of the body style. Thought it was a late model car, that's about all. Well, that's not much help. No address on him either. With a will call order paid for in cash. This if Newhall comes back. Uh-huh, it? yeah, it's covered. I don't figure there's much chance Newhall's going to do that. He ordered enough checks printed up the first time last of a year. Well, I guess that's one lead we can forget. How about that special run the stats office made for us yesterday? Anything come out of no, that? Oh, nothing. All the possibles on the list were checked out. All mm-hmm. of them clear. 
Nothing from Barton's used car lot either. Everybody on their staff's been checked out. All their ex-employees, too. No sign any one of them might have had a hand in it. Yeah. Oh, either of you seen the captain since this morning? No, why? Well, that idea we were talking over at the last meeting, he figures we'll go ahead with it this weekend. How's he figure on working in Army? Personal contact? Yeah, that's right. Uh, most of the private parties who want to sell their cars themselves use that want ad deal over the weekend. They get a special ready Saturday and Sunday. Oh, uh-huh, I know. Thursday night's the deadline for having the ads in if they're going to run the full weekend. And that's when we start working on it. We get in touch with every private party who's filed a want ad for the weekend advertising the sale of their car, huh? Yeah, we'll contact them by phone, every one of them. We advise them that if anybody representing themselves as a buyer for Dan Barton's used car lot answers their want ad, they're to get in touch with us right away. They can't stall the man long enough. We tell them to accept the information on the man the car is driving. Well, it to work out if we can get any kind of cooperation. It's going to be a big job. We'll have to cover all the want ads and all the papers. We've got a good description of that phony buyer, Joseph Newhall. If they planted a want ad in one of the papers, maybe he's the one of the gang who brought the ad in. It's possible one of the ad takers might remember him. Might be worth checking anyway. Well, could be. They might have phoned in the ad, too. That wouldn't help much. Might as well, it's not foolproof, but it's a different approach. It's a plan, anyway. We've tried everything else we can think of to reach the thieves. I get it. Auto theft, body telling. Yes, sir. Mm hmm. When was that? Thank you. Yeah, mm hmm. Yes, sir. as soon as we can. Thank you, sir. Well, maybe we won't have to wait for the weekend. What do you mean? Oh. man out in Echo Park. He runs a candy store out there. He advertised his car for sale in this morning's paper. Said the first one to answer it was a buyer from Dan Barton's used car lot. Gave his name as Joseph Newhall. Looks like the same M.O. Mm-hmm. They make a deal? Well, the candy store owner wouldn't go for the deposit check. He wanted the full amount. Said the deal didn't sound right to him. How does it stand now? Well, Newhall said he'd come back with a check for the full sale price. When? Eight o'clock tonight. <laughs> 2.20 p.m., we drove out and questioned the candy store owner further. His description of Newhall tallied with the others, but again, the potential victim had failed to get any kind of a description of the car Newhall was driving or the license number. Ben and I staked out at the house. 8 p.m. came and went. The suspect failed to show. By midnight, there was still no sign of him. Well, the way it shaped up, Newhall apparently had a policy of making a deal at first contact or forgetting about it. He probably figured that if a person was at all suspicious... The interval would give him time to check, and Newhall wasn't giving away any odds. All day Wednesday, the stakeout went on. No sign of the suspect. On Thursday night, the local newspapers gave us lists of names and phone numbers of all private parties who had ordered want ads for the coming weekend to advertise the sale of an automobile. We divided up the names, and six of us took turns on the phones and started calling each party. We warned them about the car theft ring and advised them of what steps to take in the event Joseph Newhall or one of the other gang members approached them with the proposition to buy their car. One of the private parties we contacted was a Mr. Roy Harmon. Ben got on one inch in the thing we'd prepared. Sergeant Ormsby used the other extension and called another party running an ad. Sergeant Ormsby, Los Angeles Police Department. How's that, sir? Yes, and one of the gang usually goes under the name of Joseph New. Contacted it all. Right, thank you, sir. What was that all about? A man by the name of Harmon. Runs a cocktail lounge out on South Coal. He took in a check over the bar last night. Company check from Dan Barton's used car lot. Says it was signed Joseph Newhall. Well, he ought to remember who passed it. He does. I got it right here. Uh, a man by the name of Frank Curtis. He's a regular customer at the bar. Harmon says his Curtis came into place last night with a man in a dark suit, and the man seemed to be a friend of Curtis's. Yeah. Well, I asked him what the friend looked like, and he described him. It was Newhall. Mm-hmm. What about that check business? 
Harmon says he was tending bar at the time. Told me this Frank Curtis and Newhall had quite a few drinks together and they ran out of money. Newhall wanted to cash a check, but Harmon said no. He didn't know him. Mm-hmm. Well, this Frank Curtis is a regular customer at the bar, and he offered to endorse the check for Newhall. So Harmon said okay, and he cashed it. Well, how well does Harmon know this customer of his, this Curtis? Pretty well. Lives across the street from him. We checked Frank Curtis through R&I, but he had no previous criminal record. We left the rest of the list for the other men, and Ben and I drove out and talked to Roy Harmon, the owner of the cocktail lounge where the suspect, Joseph Newhall, had cashed a check with the help of his friend, Frank Curtis. Harmon told the same story he'd given Ben over the phone. Curtis was a longtime neighbor of his and a steady customer at his cocktail lounge. As for Newhall, he'd never set eyes on him until the night before. Harmon gave us the home address of Frank Curtis, and we checked it out. Mrs. Curtis answered the door and told us that her husband, Frank, was working the newly inaugurated night shift at an aircraft plant in the south end of the city. Ben and I drove down to the plant, and after checking with the personnel office, we finally located Curtis at his work. He was an assistant foreman in one of the aircraft assembly shops. It's the truth, Sergeant Romero. The last time I saw Newhall before the years ago. We used to work at a work plant together. Tomorrow, anyway, has he done something? We understand you endorsed a check with Newhall for $50. Do you know him that well? I mean, that you'd endorse checks for him? Well, maybe I shouldn't have. Wife's always telling me I'll be more careful who I'm signing checks for. Well, what happened anyway? Wasn't the check any good? Do you have any idea where we could find this friend of yours, this Newhall? Well, I don't know. During the war, he and his wife lived in this housing project off North Main. I know they moved from that place, though. Yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, old Joe didn't tell me where he was living. I gave him my address, told him to drop over for a beer sometime. Don't remember getting his address, though. Couldn't tell me what this is about, huh? Just a routine check. We'd like to locate Newhall, that's all. Got a few questions we'd like to ask him. Sir, excuse me. We're going to watch it here, Sergeant. Yeah. Man coming through with that gig there. Okay, fellas, straight on through. All clear. Vertical finish, assembly, down the street. We're getting busy again, all right. Seems like the old swing shift days all over again. Four years. Yeah, you mentioned a minute ago that Newhall is married, Miss Curry. Yeah, that's right. What about his wife? Can you tell us anything at all about her? Betty? No, no, I don't think so. Her and Joe seem to get along all right. Got along pretty well, matter of fact. Nice girl, Betty. I never minded her much. The Newhalls have any children? Do you know that? No, no kids. Both of them work, her and Joe. Uh-huh. Would you know if Newhall's wife is still working? I don't know. Probably is. But yeah, yeah, matter of fact, she is. Joe happened to mention it the other night when we were talking. Just happened to think of it. Well, go ahead. Well, I remember I asked about Betty, and he said she was still working. Same old place, same old job, that's all. Where is this place she works, do you know? Yeah, City Hall. We continued questioning Frank Curtis, and he told us that to the best of his knowledge, the suspect's wife, Betty Newhall, had a civil service rating, and that she'd worked as a file clerk in the record room of one of the bureaus in the municipal... The next morning, Ben and I got in touch with the civil service officials at the city hall, and they got out a tracer on the wife of the suspect. 11.20 a.m. I got it. Auto theft, Friday. Yes, sir. How's that? Uh, I didn't hear it. When? Yeah, I see. Yes, sir. Right. We'll check with you in about an hour. Bye. I don't know why we always have to do it the hard way. Why? What was it? The call back on Newhall's wife. Most of it checks out just the way Curtis told us. What's her up? Betty Newhall quit her job a month ago. Hasn't been around, hasn't been seen since. Civil service can't even contact her. What's the deal? She moved. No forwarding address. Not a trace of her.
Madrid Ball Road off the 57 Freeway. Light up the holidays with a new vehicle from Anaheim Auto Center. We'll make your holiday dreams come true at Anaheim Auto Center with our incredible savings and huge discounts. Need some extra money for the holidays? Come to Anaheim Auto Center today and save thousands. We have a great selection of new vehicles and unbeatable service. Light up your holiday season today at Anaheim Auto Center. We want you to be completely satisfied. The holidays are the perfect time to buy a new vehicle. Why go anywhere else? We have it all at one convenient location near the Anaheim Pond. So light up your holiday season with a great new car or truck from Anaheim Auto Center. Exit Ball Road off the 57 Freeway. KNX 1070 News Radio. Saturday, February 23rd, the strongest lead we'd had to the auto theft gang began to fade. Mrs. Betty Newhall, the wife of our principal suspect, wasn't to be found. We checked out all our known friends and relatives, the places she was known to frequent. There wasn't a trace of her. Then got all the available information on her from the Civil Service Office, and we got out a broadcast in the supplementary all-points bulletin. We found out she had a 10-year-old son, so we checked with the Board of Education to see if the boy was registered in one of the city schools. He wasn't listed. Still no response. We stayed on it. In the meantime, the weekend was wearing past the halfway point. The other two teams of men working the case were standing by, but apparently none of the private parties who were running want ads over the weekend advertising the sale of an automobile had been approached yet by either Joseph Newhall or some other member of the gang. If they did make a contact, it hadn't been reported to us. Saturday night, still no response. 8.50 p.m. Ben and I had some supper at Johnny Coken's place, and then we went back to the office. Not a bad meal at all, huh? Pretty fair for a Saturday night. Good soup. Yeah, there's nothing like that corn chowder Johnny puts out. It's the best. I sure wish you'd do something about that coffee. Like taking a shot of adrenaline, isn't it? It is pretty strong and... Excuse me. Maybe that's what's giving me this heartburn. Where's Armsby? I thought he was covering. So did I. He was here when I left. Joe, Ben. Hi, Army. Thought we lost you. And taking a call from Hollywood Division. Good piece of news. What's that? Newhall's wife. They found her. At approximately 25 minutes past 8 that night, a dark-haired woman in her late 30s had brought a young boy into a pharmacy in the Hollywood area. Apparently, the woman had been drinking, but she was not intoxicated. The young boy with her, whom she identified as her 10-year-old son, was badly cut and bruised about the face and head. The woman insisted that the pharmacist on duty treat the boy and attend to his injuries. After arguing with the woman, the pharmacist called the Hollywood Receiving Hospital. An ambulance was dispatched, and the boy and his mother were for treatment. At Hollywood Receiving, the woman gave her name as Betty Harrison, and her son's name was George Harrison. But a routine identification check by officers next door at the Hollywood Division Station disclosed her true name as Mrs. Betty Newhall. The desk sergeant ordered her held for interrogation and notified our office immediately. 9.30 p.m., Ben and I arrived at the Hollywood Division. Your boy George, Mrs. Newhall, how did he happen to get beat up like that? It's pretty bad for a little fellow. I warned Joe about hitting little George. I told him if he did it again, I'd walk out. Well, I did walk out. I don't care what happens to him. You mean the boy's father did that to him, beat him up like that? He's not George's father. Second marriage. My name used to be Donnelly. I had two kids. One died. Uh-huh. When the divorce came through, I got custody of George, and I married Joe Newhall. You know why we're looking for your husband, Ms. Newhall? Yeah, I think so. Why do you think so? Car business. I knew what he was doing. Do you have any idea at all where we can find your husband? I'm not sure. He might be a lot of places. Just can't get over what he did to George. No reason at all. 
husband came home and asked if he could go to the show. My husband got up and slapped him. Been drinking quite a bit. He hit the kid with his closed fist, kept hitting. A grown man slugging a ten-year-old kid like that. Yes, I don't care about any man where George is concerned. Nobody's going to treat a kid of mine like that. You said you knew about your husband's dealing in the car business, Mrs. Newhall. How much do you know about it? I didn't have any part of it. I can tell you that much. It was his idea from the beginning, my husband's. Got the men together to work the racket. He made all the plans. He gave all the orders. Why was it you quit your job at the city hall in such a hurry? My husband's idea, I guess. He thought if anything happened, he didn't want to be traced that easy. Then he had to go and get drunk that night. Cash that check. He always did stupid things like that. Mm-hmm. How about the gang your husband has working with him, Ms. Newhall? Can you tell us anything about them? Mm, yes, I can. Police always working with them, I know of. Deadman and Curry Reese and Jack Whitmore. Uh-huh. Maybe there's someone else besides them, but I don't know them. You know where these men live, ma'am? Where we can find them? I think I do, yeah. I got the dresses at home. By this time, they're probably all in there. You know the places they were supposed to be staying? Yeah, I got the dresses at home. How about the cars they got on this deal they were working? What are they doing with them? Do you know that? I don't know for sure. They were moving them east, I think, selling them back there. Yes, ma'am. I just always get that the deep marriage of Jolly Hamp, the Deford. No. Even they didn't like kids. They didn't want to have a home. Why'd they have to be that way? Well, I'd like to ask you something, if I could. Yeah. Why'd you marry him? 10.43 p.m. We stopped at the New Hall apartment on the way back to the city hall, called the office, and arranged for a stakeout. The wife of the suspect, Betty New Hall, gave us the names and addresses of the people she knew to be working with her husband, Joseph New Hall, in the auto theft gang. She had no information to offer on the cars they might be driving. When we got to the office, we took a complete statement from Mrs. Newhall, and then she was booked in at the main jail on suspicion of grand theft auto. 11.09 p.m. Together with Wilson and Ormsby, we started checking out the addresses of the gang members. Our first two stops, we got nothing. On our last two, we did a little better. We picked up a Jack Whitmore, Curly Reese, and a Carl Stedman, three of the names which Mrs. Newhall had mentioned. We took them downtown and booked them in at the main jail. That still left the principal suspect, Joseph Newhall, unaccounted for. At 1.45 a.m. the next morning, we got a tip as to his whereabouts, a small hotel on East 1st Street. We checked it out. The man answering Newhall's description was registered in room 209 on the second floor. We got a pass key from the room clerk on duty and started up the stairs. Two oh nine. Down this way, Jim. Mm-hmm. Yeah, seven. Here we are. Mm-hmm. See if we can get a rise, huh? Yeah. Yeah, police. Yeah, police officers. I'd hold it there, Mister. Down, Ben. Yeah. Hey, what is this? What's this all about? You generally sleep with your clothes on, New Hall? Look, I don't know what you're talking about. What is this? A shakedown? He's clean, Joe. I'll check his bag. Hey, now stay out of those things. You haven't got any right breaking in here like this. Going through my property. Let's relax, New Hall. This won't take long. Two full pads of them, Joe. Find them in your suitcases. Company checks. Dan Barton's used car lot. We talked to your friends, mister. We got one side of the story. You want to come downtown and give us yours? You get nothing from me. Not unless I see my lawyer. You can't hold me on any charges. Grand theft auto in New Hall. We've got the witnesses. We've got the evidence. If you've got something to say, say it. If you haven't, we'll get along downtown. You haven't got anything on me. You haven't got enough to hold me an hour. We're going to give it a try. For a full five hours, we questioned New Hall, both at the hotel and later downtown in the interrogation room. And after five hours of questioning, he finally broke and admitted being the mastermind behind the auto theft racket. Your true name is Joseph Willard Newhall, is that right? 
Yeah, that's it. Now, you can't blame the whole setup on me, though. My wife had a hand in it just as much as I did. Well, we've already got her statement. You want to give us yours? And she's just as much to blame as I am. We didn't hurt anybody anyway. It's just a con deal, that's all. We didn't hurt anybody. How do you figure that? Well, just a simple con deal. People advertising their cars for sale are trying to cheat out a few bucks for themselves. We just outfigured them, that's all. You ready to dictate a statement for us? You know, we outfigured you two. You'd never reached us if it wasn't for my wife. We'd reach you. Not in 30 years, you wouldn't. Where'd you go in circles? Just one hitch. My wife and that stupid kid of hers. Just because I slapped him around a little, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for that. Well, you better learn a lesson, mister. Why? Next time you fight, don't pick a ten-year-old. The story you have just heard was true. The names were changed to protect the innocent. On May 29th, trial was held in Superior Court, Department 87, City and County of Los Angeles, State of California. In a moment, the results of that trial. A check of his fingerprints revealed that Joseph Newhall's true name was Joseph Orrin Henderson and that he had a previous record of forgery and burglary in the state of South Carolina. Henderson, alias Newhall, was tried and convicted, along with his associates in the auto theft gang, on eight counts of grand theft and forgery of a fictitious check. They received sentences as prescribed by law. Grand theft is punishable by imprisonment for not less than one or more than ten years. Forgery of a fictitious check is punishable by imprisonment in the county jail for not more than one year or in the state penitentiary for not more than 14 years. The wife, Betty Newhall, was convicted as an accomplice and was sentenced to serve one year in the county jail. Ladies and gentlemen, our security and the peace of the world are in danger while hundreds of millions behind the Iron Curtain are victims of vicious lies about the United States and other free nations. Join the Crusade for Freedom through your local Crusade Committee or by writing to General Clay, Empire State Building, New York City. Make a contribution to its work. Help truth fight communism. Join the crusade for freedom. You have just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice comes from the office of Chief of Police, W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. Fatima Cigarettes, best of all king-size cigarettes, has brought you Dragnet, transcribed from Los Angeles. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Radio Days, your home for the best of Golden Age Radio, when radio was king. If you enjoyed tonight's show, please do take a moment and send us a review. We always appreciate reviews, and they help new listeners find us. Until next time, this is your host, John Hagedorn. Stay safe, and we'll be back soon at 1001 Radio Days. And one note, don't forget to pick up 1001 Radio Crime Solvers. That's 1001 Radio Crime Solvers. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and we'll be back soon. 
Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.